Shabbat Shalom, everyone. This is exciting today because we get to go back to Galatians, the actual book, for real, this time. Uh, we're in chapter 4, if you remembered. Uh, it's been a while, but we've been, looking, we've been looking at the spirit of Torah. We've been looking at the difference of what it really means to, to know the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And having that information, yes, uh, is invaluable. I mean, you need it. If you're going to be reading through the New Testament, you're going to be proclaiming the gospel. This is something that you need to have under lock and key. And it is more important now, and I see it, than in any generation before us because of what is happening right now to the church. It is frightening. So with that said, let's get back to it. We're going to go, and I'm actually going to just jump back a few verses back to verse 21, and we'll begin there. Uh, Tell me, you who desire to be under the Torah... Do you not hear the Torah? Now, again, just as a recap, what does Paul mean by this? Well, the problem in Galatia is certain men who are Pharisees, believers in Yeshua, have gone to Galatia, and they've told the Galatians, unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. This is what they have told them. So this is the issue. When, in fact, Paul is making the note that, listen, you've been circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. You've been sealed with the Holy Spirit of God. So here Paul starts out in verse 21, Tell me who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? And I love this because now he's going to take them back to the Torah. You think you're listening to the Torah, but you're not. And then he proceeds to say, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh. What is he talking about? He's talking about Ishmael. And he notes, and this is so vitally important, because what is going on in Galatia? The message is, hey, you need to be circumcised in the flesh. And here he brings this man Ishmael out and he says he was born according to the flesh and he, meaning Isaac, of the free woman through promise. Very significant. Continuing on, verse 24. Which things are symbolic? For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Yerushalayim, which now is and is in bondage with her children. But the Yerushalayim above is free, which is mother of us all. Okay, and obviously this Yerushalayim that he's talking is Sarah. Okay, so Hagar represents the, the covenant given there, but Sarah represents the new covenant. She represents the new Jerusalem. In other words, to save the kingdom of God. And this is going to be important as we continue. Verse 27, for it is written. Okay, so now he's quoting, he's going to quote scripture to us. And what's he say? Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Profound statement profound what he just did here what did we were he was just talking about sarah what do we know about sarah she was barren she was completely barren she could not have children now all of a sudden paul goes and it's amazing how paul does this and i love the fact and it's just a reality and the more you study his work the more you realize this is not man putting this together paul has an anointing of the holy spirit and he is weaving these scriptures together he's putting the puzzle together for us 
He's doing all the hard work. It's absolutely amazing. And what he's doing is he's saying, look at this. Look at this scripture. Look at what this says. It says, rejoice, O barren. Now, what is significant about this passage? Yes, we understand this represents Sarah. She was barren, and he's bringing this to the table. But where is he drawing this from? Where does this passage come from in the Bible? Isaiah 54, verse 1. And this is where it gets very significant. What precedes Isaiah 54, 1? Isaiah 53. And what is Isaiah 53 all about? It's about the suffering servant, how the Mashiach would come. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. That is an amazing thing. This is one of the most amazing messianic prophecies we have where the Messiah is going to come in, intervene, and do away with sin, give us victory, give us deliverance. And there you move into Isaiah 54, and the first thing is that therefore rejoice. See, it's the crescendo. It's the response. Rejoice, O barren. Barren, the kingdom of God. This is what's amazing. Through the death and re- through the ministry of Yeshua, him coming to the earth, what happened to the kingdom of God? It exploded. The kingdom of God got her children. She didn't have any. It was barren, but through his work, the kingdom of God happened. You know, you know, I, I think of the, the passage that he says, the law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of heaven has been preached. And guess what? Everyone is pressing into it. Because of Yeshua. John came to bear witness of Yeshua, and everyone's pressing into it. And so this is powerful, what the Apostle Paul is doing. I mean, it's multi-leveled, and the more you go back and the more you think about it, the deeper it is. Profound. Now he goes on in verse 28. Now we, brethren, and I love this, that he says we, brethren, because he is a Jew in the first century speaking to Gentiles. Okay, you didn't find Jews running around calling Gentiles their brethren. But that shows you Paul understood the middle wall of separation had come down. This is what Yeshua had did. And the two are to be one. And you can see the intimacy of relationship that Paul understands. He says, we, brethren, as Isaac, Yitzhak, was our children of promise. He's telling them, look at Isaac. That's who we are. Remember, Isaac, Sarah couldn't give birth It was a miracle. He was a product of spirit, a product of the Holy Spirit. And as Isaac was, so we are. But as he, meaning Ishmael, who was born according to the flesh, again, intentionally bringing that flesh component out, then what did he do? Persecuted him, meaning Isaac, who was born according to the spirit, even so it is now. I'm going to say it again. Even so, it is now. What is now? Paul just dropped the story of Ishmael and Isaac on their sand and said, read this. Understand what this story is. This is you. This is what is happening to you right now. What is happening to the Galatians right now? What what does he mean by that? Remember, we have men who have come to them and have told them, you cannot be saved unless you're circumcised in the flesh. There's no salvation for you. You'll be kicked out of the kingdom. That's powerful. Understand, that message, only children of flesh who reject the prophets, what they prophesied would happen with the Gentiles, only children of flesh who would reject what the apostles 
had, had accomplished at, at Jerusalem, which was through the inspiration of, of the Spirit of God, only people of flesh would go out to bring a message that the Galatians were receiving. Only men of flesh would do that. You want to talk about chutzpah. Paul had a double dose of it. I mean, literally, if you read this, and you read this carefully, what do you realize? And this is, this is what's kind of frightening. You look at this in the historical context. Paul is likening these believing Pharisees who were going out corrupting Galatia, telling them they can't be saved unless they're circumcised in the flesh. He's likening them literally to Ishmael. This is what he's doing. And I got to tell you, for him to do that, you got to understand. I mean, in this historical context, do you want to cause riots? Do you want to get kicked out of cities? Do you want to get stoned? Because all of these are very realistic scenarios that could unfold when you're a Jew in that first century going around calling your Jewish brethren, especially this intimate circle of Jewish brethren known as the Pharisees, which Paul was one, and then likening them to Ishmael. That will get you stoned. That will get you kicked out of the city, thrown out of the temple. That's an amazing thing because this tells you something about Paul. The apostle Paul is fearless. He will not back down. He doesn't please men. He is only seeking to please God. He is the ultimate warrior for the Most High. He's a soldier. And he doesn't care what enemy and, and, and who the enemy puts in front of him. He's not going to back down. And what's amazing, no matter how great the pressure was, which there was great pressure. If you've been going through this series with this, you understand that. There was great pressure in regard to this very thing. And Paul would not back down. He held his ground and is still doing so. Now moving on to verse 30. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. So the children of flesh that are established on flesh, they're going to get cut off. Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman should not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free Moving on to verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty. Eleutheria in the Greek. This is going to become very important as we continue. But stand fast in the Eleutheria, by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Mashiach will profit you nothing. This whole epistle and what it's about right here. If you had any questions, what is this epistle about? It is all about circumcision. Notice he doesn't say, Paul doesn't say, I say to you, if you keep the Torah, if you keep the commandments of God, if you hear the instructions of the Lord, Christ will profit you nothing. Not a whisper of that. If you become circumcised in the flesh, this is the thing that is on the chopping block. This is the thing that's being discussed Christ will profit you nothing. Now, a statement like that, I want you to think about if the Apostle Paul is right, and he is, and he comes out and says, in regard to this particular matter, if you grab hold of it, Christ is going to mean nothing to you. What does that mean to you? Just think about that. that. That's a statement. In other words, what we're talking about, what Paul is addressing, it is salvational. This is salvational. This is not a potato-potato thing. Well, you know, it sounds important, but it's not salvational, Paul. 
You know, you're getting into this, you're acting, you're getting all worked up over this, over really kind of nothing. I mean, they're not going to lose their salvation. You need to read his words carefully because he's under a completely different impression. This is salvational. This is a big deal. And working through this is important for us today. And we'll get more into that as we go. You'll see why it's so important. Okay, moving on to verse 3. This is what we read. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You're sentencing yourself to death. If you're to go out, and this is what Paul's saying, if you're going to go out and the only way that you can be saved is if you get circumcised in the flesh, you're hinging upon the fact that that circumcision is going to save you. Therefore, the whole law is going to come down upon you. And trust me, and this is why he's saying this is salvational, you're not going to make it. You're going to go down. You're going to fall. You have become estranged, meaning you're cut off. You're separated from Mashiach. Again, this is no small matter. You who attempt to be justified by the law, and this means in the context of what is being dealt with here, you have fallen from grace. And I, I, I tell you again how important this matter is. Okay, so just before he said Christ is going to profit you nothing, and now he says you have fallen from grace. This is salvational. This is end of the world stuff. And there's a reason why Paul is taking this so seriously and so vehemently coming against these adversaries that are corrupting them, that are deceiving them. Verse 5, moving on. For we through the Spirit, Notice he doesn't say we through the flesh, we through the spirit. See, this is what Paul, this is what was happening. Read the New Testament. The anointing was coming down on the, on the Gentiles who believed. There was anointing. We through the spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Messiah Yeshua, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. I'm going to tell you. You can condense the entire epistle. If someone wants to come to you and ask, well, what is Galatians about? Quote Galatians 5, 6. That's all you need to say. Circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. Faith working through love. That's what it is. And it was the same thing he says to the Corinthians in Corinthians uh, chapter 7, right? Verse 19. Circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. But keeping the commandments of God is what matters. So if you want to understand what this epistle really is about, and you want to be able to condense it within five seconds, quote this verse. This is what it's all about. Verse 7. You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? You were on the right path. You were clinging to it. You were walking the way you should walk, but now you've abandoned it. What's happened? Now notice what he goes on to say here. This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. This is not of God. He's coming and saying, you're listening to something else. It's demonic. This is total deception. Deception is coming in. And, you know, we live in this make-believe world. You know, as if we're in the church, everything's safe. The enemy's not coming after us. That's the exact opposite. We're the target. Galatia was a target. These Gentiles were rejoicing in Yeshua, in the sacrifice, and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. They were rejoicing. They loved it. And the, the enemy came right for them. Can't have that. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. You know, it's kind of scary 
When you think about, and again, this is something we've already covered, but you think about the backdrop of the story. These believing Pharisees, when they came in, they did so on the premise of Torah. They did so because to be circumcised, unless you're circumcised, you cannot be part of Abraham's household. Go read Genesis 17. And this is what's scary. The devil is leveraging the Torah against the believers. Make no mistake, he will do it today. And I'm telling you, he is doing it today because I'm dealing with this. I'm dealing with demonic powers. It is insane. It's hard for me even to conceive it as it unfolds right before me, but it is happening. Be careful that you do not get deceived, that you get pulled in. Do not let the adversary use scripture against you. He will attempt to do it. Guarantee it. If he used it against Yeshua, he's going to use it against you. You take it to the bank. Amen? All right. Verse 10. I have, and this is good news. I mean, it's been so intense. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will have no other mind. I love this statement because it shows Paul's heart that he... He believes that everything that he is saying here, they're going to adhere to. Everything that he told them at the front end, everything that he said, they're going to circle back to, they're going to cling to it. He has confidence. They're going to come to their senses. This is what he, however, he's going to address the people who brought this message. And this is what he says in regard to them. But he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. Now, notice, and this is important that you pick up on the little terms that are popping up in this epistle. He who troubles you. Do you remember the document? The document that was created, it was literally the written verdict in Jerusalem uh, where the apostles gathered together and they said, this is the written verdict of what we're going to do with the Gentiles. And right at the head of the document, we have heard that there are some who went out from us but, we're not, but they were not behind them, that this was not from us, but they went out from us, have troubled you and unsettled your soul with words whom we gave no such commandment. Who troubled you. See, this is very important. Paul is bringing that reality, that declaration back to the table and saying, but he who troubles you, they know, he knows who these men are, are going to bear their judgment. They're going to come under the judgment of God. And I'm going to tell you, I don't care how you want to spin that. That is pure death. That is the most atrocious way to, to leave this earth is under the judgment of God. All right? Moving on to verse 11. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, okay, I still preach it, why do I suffer persecution? The first thing I, I just want to say here, you know, this whole notion, which there's a notion out there in, in internet land, and of course it always gets back to me, uh, through emails and calls and what have you. But this whole notion that, well, actually, the Gentiles, they were supposed to be circumcised in the flesh, the ones who are being, who are being grafted into Israel, but just not right away. At some point in the future, when there's more conviction, and as they're going through, then they're supposed to get circumcised. But we're not going to trouble them with it right now. We're just going to ease them into it. That is total fiction. It's baloney. Because here's Paul coming on, back on the scene long after, and he's saying, if I still preach circumcision, his message doesn't change. It hasn't changed. And he's suffering persecution for it. And then he says, then the offense of the cross has ceased. 
And it's one thing that every Christian needs to know. It's the fact that when you carry the true message, an anointed message, an Holy Spirit-inspired message, take it to the bank you are going to offend. Get used to being offensive. When Yeshua went out in his ministry, he offended everywhere he went. And he offended the most respected religious leaders of the day. If we're of Yeshua, and, and what does Paul say in 2 Timothy 3, 12? All who seek to live godly in the Messiah Yeshua will suffer persecution. We should be suffering persecution. We're going to suffer persecution and scoffing as Isaac experienced from Ishmael if we're anointed with the Holy Spirit, carrying the truth even from our own, even from within our own house, we're going to suffer this persecution. This is a reality. Galatians 5.12 I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. Cut themselves off. Apokopsantai in the Greek. And what's interesting about this is uh, there are other translations that just translate it as castration or mutilation, same thing. And so here you would see, I could wish that those who had done this to you would go castrate themselves. A bit of irony, don't you think? Considering he, this group is going out and telling him, hey, you need to be circumcised in the flesh. And Paul is saying, hey, I wish you'd go get castrated. Yeah. You look at this, now, when we actually follow this term through the New Testament, like in Mark 9. Think about Mark 9 for a second. If your hand offends thee, cut it off. Apocopsantai. And so, and so this is the actual term Paul uses here. If it offends thee. And so what I, what I really want you to draw away from this is understanding that this, these individuals are offending, and they are to be cut off. They're not to be regarded with the body. See, it's better to go into heaven lame and maimed than to go into hell fully, all, you know, with your hands intact. And so cutting it off, literally. And so this, this statement here, I mean, there's no ambiguity in how Paul, what Paul is thinking in regard to these men that are bringing this message. And it's why I make a big deal out of it. And people wonder, well, and, and not to mention I have people calling me and asking me and telling me that they feel pressured that they have to be circumcised as, as adults, as these male, and they have 15-year-old children and so on and so forth. I mean, these, this happens. This is real. And this is where I get worked up. And the only reason I get worked up is because I see that this vexed Paul to such great lengths and that this is a real war. This is a spiritual war. This is not a thing, again, of, of a potato-potato. It's salvational. So moving on to verse 13. For you, brethren have been called to liberty. You've been called to liberty. And I want to stop right here because what we find is Paul is circling back to when we began in chapter 5, verse 1. He's circling back to the statement he made there. And I want to put this back up there. In 5, verse 1, he says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty. Okay, don't be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Now, here's what's interesting about this. So he circles back. This is what we're called to. There's no question. We're called to liberty. He ends this statement with don't be entangled with the yoke of bondage. This is how we're to do it. Notice something very different happens as we come to verse 13. As we come to verse 13, he says, 
Only do not use liberty as an opportunity of the flesh, but through love serve one another. What did the apostle Paul just do? He just threw the anchor overboard. He threw an anchor statement. This is an anchor statement. Paul, when Paul, when we see he's throwing anchor statements, passages of clarification where he is being careful, we know there's a threat. There's a real threat that you're going to take his words to a place he never intended for you to take them. So he throws this anchor statement saying, no, this is not an opportunity. He's trying to define what liberty really means. And he's saying, no, this isn't for the flesh. So that you could do whatever you want. That's not what this is about. See, liberty is not a calling to abandon the law of God. It is not, as they say, a license to sin. And they made very, very clear here with this anchor statement. Given the importance of what we see Paul saying in this passage, and the fact that what Paul was worried about, what, what he was really concerned about, and the reason he took the time to do this, has actually come to full fruition within the church, we're going to spend a little bit of time on this, in, in addressing this. Um, and how I want to do this is I want to break into the epistle to Peter. See, Paul wasn't the only one who threw anchor statements. He wasn't the only one concerned about how you interpret liberty and as, as to how I would interpret liberty. And so in 1 Peter, let's build on this, what Paul just shared. In verse 15, For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Look at what Peter says. As free, yet not using liberty. The same Greek word, eleutheria. Same Greek word as Paul's using. Yet not using liberty as a cloak, okay, a covering. For vice, kakia in the, in the Greek, it's literally wickedness, okay? But as bondservants of God, absolutely amazing statement. Peter does the exact same thing that Paul does. He throws an anchor statement. Throws an anchor statement. Yes, we are free. And Peter's talking to Jews. This is fascinating. What Peter is telling the Jews is exactly what Paul is telling the Gentiles. We are men of freedom. We are men of liberty. However, don't you dare get caught putting this liberty into such a way where you cover your wickedness. You justify the things you want to do that don't line up with the Bible. And you, you know what? You're going to wrap your little sins in a pretty package that says grace and freedom and liberty and put a nice little bow on it and everything's okay. That's not going to happen. That is not going to happen. And so there's a serious threat I mean, when you start to see patterns like this erupt in Scripture, where Peter's throwing anchor statements on the very topic of liberty, and Paul's throwing anchor statements on this, our antennas should be full up to the ceiling. We should be careful because there's a real threat of this being taken to a place where it ought not be. In fact, I want to give you a real-life example of this happening just last week. I don't know if any of you, how many of you know who Andy Staley is? Stanley. Andy Stanley is. He's a prominent pastor. I mean, national pastor. I mean, he's one of the biggest pastors in, in, in America right now. His father is a prominent, uh, was a prominent man. Uh, and everyone knows, uh, what's his name? What's his father's name? Charles Stanley. Thank you. Everybody knows Charles Stanley. He's a very reputable man. Well, 
his son, Andy Stanley, kind of rocked the Christian world. And, and it's all ablaze. There's, there's, there's a lot of, you know, there's a firestorm of debate, as I say, that has erupted. And the reason is, is he gave a message. And, and it, ironically enough, he calls this, this particular series Aftermath. And uh, considering there is a lot of aftermath uh, th- that he has given that's, you know, being taken up right now. I want to show you what he said. And, and I want to be clear, I don't use this pulpit. I'm not going after other pastors. I don't know. Mr. Stanley at all. He's probably a wonderful human being, great character, integrity. He's probably a father. He's somebody's Charles Stanley's son. He's probably somebody's mentor. I mean, I look at him, I, I want to personalize him. He's a human being. He's going out and trying to confess Yeshua as the Messiah and trying to save souls. And for, for that, I'm very thankful and respectful. I didn't plan on actually showing you. This is, this is a little bit of irony here, but this just came in last week, and I was dumbfounded because it's the very thing that I was working on in the sermon. There's a real-life example of what Paul and what Peter were worried would happen. Let me show you the article that came out. It was by the Christian Post. It's by a writer of Michael uh, Grybowski, and this is, what, this is the headline. Christians must unhitch Old Testament from their faith, says Andy Stanley. Now, let me take you through what he says here. Okay? This is in the article. First century church leaders unhitched the church from the worldview, value system, and regulations of the Jewish scriptures, said Stanley. Going on. Peter, James, and Paul elected to unhitch the Christian faith from their Jewish scriptures, and my friends, we must as well. Again, another bit of irony, and I, I tell you the truth, I did not plan, I just threw this in as an afterthought to the sermon to give you a, a real-life example, but the fact that he's bringing up Peter, James, and Paul, now you can't make this stuff up, these are the three men that I had already prepared in this message to go to. You cannot make that up, it is so bizarre. But anyways, so here he's saying, unhitch from the Jewish scriptures, see, this is the mindset of progressive modern-day Christianity. We got to separate from the Old Testament the Jewish scriptures. It's not for the church. Continuing on, Stanley argued that it had to be done for the same reason the church in Acts 15 did so. We'll stop right here. Do you understand why I spent so much time on Acts 15? Do you understand how important it is to understand that chapter in modern-day Christianity? You need to have it. Because there are men going out who are saying that Acts 15 is all about abandoning the Jewish scriptures, about walking away from Torah. This is how they see it. Which was so that we must not make it difficult for those Gentiles who are turning to God. This is their understanding. This is the interpretation. That, well, because the Torah, you've read all those 613 commandments. It's so, we can't, no, we're not going to make it difficult. Never mind, there's not even a whisper about what the problem was and what was troubling, which was articulated in the letter of circumcision. Nothing is mentioned. Going on, Stanley argued that the early church showed that there was a need to move past the Old Testament for the sake of Gentile believers and that the resurrection of Yeshua was enough. Yeshua's new covenant, his covenant with the nations, and I just got to say something. When you go to scripture, I'll be very clear. 
The new covenant, the one who it was given to was specifically Israel. You will not find in Ezekiel 37 that it was given to the nations. You will not find in Jeremiah 31 that it was given to the nations. That it, no, it was given to Israel. And this is the breakdown. Do you understand? Do you see the, the, the domino effect? See, if you understand it was given to Israel, then you understand that, oh, what gracious and unbelievable mercy this was given to Israel, but now a door into Israel has opened for Gentiles to be grafted into Israel. That's way different. And there's, there's a connection that is made when I understand that. Because I understand that we are, because of Israel, because of the mercy through Yeshua, and the, Israel is the door, Yeshua has brought us in to be one with his people. Not building up the middle wall of separation, but tearing that thing down. Okay, so Yeshua's new covenant with his covenant his nations. His covenant with you, his covenant with us, can stand on its own to nailed, scarred, resurrection feet. It does not need propping up by the Jewish scriptures, noted Stanley. Doesn't need propping up by the Jewish scriptures. Let me tell you this. Somebody should tell the Apostle Paul that. Somebody should tell Peter that. Somebody should tell James that. Because guess what? Everywhere they went, they said no other things than that which the Torah and the prophets said would come. And I am quoting from the New Testament. Read Acts chapter 18. Read Acts chapter 24. Read Acts chapter 26. Read Acts chapter 28. Read 1 Corinthians 15. They went out and showed from the scriptures that Yeshua is the Messiah. They did not set it aside. Nothing of like that. None of these guys believe this. Final, and this is where I really want to go to. Stanley acknowledged that his comments may be considered a little disturbing to some, but then added that for many, it is liberating. Liberty! Liberty! Freedom! This is what we have. This is what's being sold. You see how important it is to understand these anchor statements that Peter's throwing out, that Apostle Paul is throwing out? They're vital that we don't understand liberty in a corrupted and perverse way. Let me take this a step further. I want to take you to what James had to say. We looked at what Paul said. We looked at Peter. And now we're going to look at James. The very three men that Mr. Stanley mentioned. And as we look at this, uh, in, in many ways, this is going to bring our whole discussion full circle. Very powerful section of Scripture. He says in verse 22, chapter 1, Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. A warning goes out. And he says there's deception involved. The difference between hearing and actually doing. And what did Paul say in, in uh, Romans 2.13? For not the hearers of the Torah are just in the sight of God, only the doers of the Torah are just. And remember, Paul was writing to Gentiles when he said that. This is, he was writing to Gentiles. So here James, saying the exact same thing Paul is, saying the exact same thing essentially that, that Peter, we're going to find, said. But, he, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself and goes away and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. Verse 25. But he who looks into, oh, look at this. The perfect law of liberty. We're talking about liberty and what James calls the perfect law of liberty. He who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it is not a forgetful hearer, but he is a what? He's a doer. He's a doer of the work. He's a doer of the word. 
This is fascinating. What did James just do? He just defined what liberty, the perfect law of liberty, actually is. Isn't that interesting? To walk in the perfect law of liberty means I am walking in the obedience of the commandments of God. That's what the perfect law of liberty is. It's very specific. He ends with this phrase, this one will be blessed in what he does. Where does James get that? Deuteronomy 11.6, Behold, I set before you today a blessing and a curse. A blessing if you keep the commandments of God and a curse if you do not keep the commandments of God. Here, James just comes on the scene. If you do it, if you do the commandments of God, you're going to be blessed. And that's how you walk in the perfect law of liberty. That's what liberty is. Now, this helps illuminate where the Apostle Paul is actually coming from. And the context, which he's actually using the term liberty, which is why this anchor statement said that, no, no, don't use it as an opportunity for the flesh. Which is why Peter says, no, no, don't cloak. Don't use it as a cloak for wickedness. They're all saying the same thing. Peter, Paul, James. Let me take it a step further in James. Chapter 2, verse 8. But if you really fulfill the royal law. Now, this is interesting Paul or James here is utilizing this term synonymously with that of the perfect law of liberty. It's important you pick up on this. One time he can call it the perfect law of liberty, and another time he calls it the royal law or namon basilikon in the Greek. And basilicus in, in the Greek, it refers to being literally associated with the king or connected with the king, belonging to the king. That's, that, that's important because when we look at this, we're looking at the king's law. This is the royal law. And he goes on, according to the scripture. So his understanding comes of this royal law. It's according to the scripture. If you fulfill the royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. Where did he go? He went to the Torah. Leviticus 19. Again, I tell you, what is the Torah? It is a book of Love, it promotes love. The very thing that destroys the kingdom of Satan. That's what destroys the kingdom. Love destroys it. And so here is the royal law of loving your neighbor as yourself. But then he goes on and says, but if you show partiality. Now I gotta tell you, it goes back to the Torah, but instead of Leviticus, he goes to Deuteronomy 16, which explicitly says, it's a command. You shall not show partiality. Explicit command. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the Torah as transgressors. This is amazing how he's going through this. Going on to verse 10. For whoever shall keep the whole Torah and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. Now this is amazing because he's in Leviticus 19. He was in Deuteronomy 16. He's all over the place. Now he's going to go to Exodus 20, okay, or Deuteronomy 5. For he who said, do not commit adultery, seventh commandment, also said, do not murder, sixth commandment. He's going through the Ten Commandments now. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become, what? A transgressor of the law. What's his advice? So speak and so do as those who will be judged by, oh, the law of liberty. In other words, so speak and so do. Walk in perfect righteousness. Walk in holiness. It's the law of liberty. It means the exact opposite to the church today. It means the exact opposite. They look at the law of liberty as, I have to reject the Torah. I can't have the grace of Yeshua. I can't go and call upon his name. 
and seek to establish my own righteousness by listening to all that and knowing I'm just going to fail anyways. So that isn't for me. That, that has nothing to do with grace. This is, how they, this is how they define. This is how the enemy has come in so twistedly and perversely and changed the definition of what liberty is. That said, I want to take this information. We're going to go back to Galatians chapter 5. And let's utilize what we've just learned. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Oh, interesting. For all the law, all the Torah is fulfilled in one word. Even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He quotes the exact same verse that James quotes. Oh, and regarding to the exact same topic, liberty. And he quotes it as, we need to be a doer of the word. We need to fulfill the Torah. The very thing the church will tell you doesn't exist, it's been thrown away. How can I fulfill that which has been thrown away? You can't. We are called to walk in liberty. And that means walking in righteousness. Now here's where things get really interesting. And I need you to pay close attention here because if you're ever going to scripturally defend the legitimacy of Torah through faith in the Messiah... This is something you're going to want to have in your arsenal. Very, very powerful. Going, jump, just jumping ahead in Galatians for a moment. We're going to go to 6.1. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, they're sinning, it's lawlessness. You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens. And what does it say? And so fulfill the law of Christ. So fulfill the law of Christ. Fascinating statement. I have had so many discussions with Christians in regard to the Torah. And I'm going to tell you, this one comes up more times than not. Is this discussion of, oh, Daniel, really? You're, you're going to follow the Torah? Okay, well, I'm going to follow the law of Christ. I will follow the law of Christ. You go ahead and try to establish your own righteousness within the Torah, but I'm going to follow the law of Christ. Well, here's something important that needs to be pointed out. Let me go back to Galatians 5.14 and show you something. Galatians 5.14 says, For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I want you to understand these two passages are identical. And they're saying the same thing. In, in 6.2, bear one another's burdens. That is loving your neighbor as yourself. And when his usage of the Torah, the law, it is. It's the law of Christ. Do you, do you see what Paul did? He synonymously used the Torah with the term law of Christ. So, the next time you get engaged in a conversation that says, well, I'm going to keep the law of Christ, and you can go ahead and keep the Torah, say, hold, hold, time out. Time out. Did you know that it's only found, the law of Christ, that term is only found once in the New Testament? And did you know that it's used synonymously? It's equated to the actual Torah. So the very thing that you're abandoning, you don't even realize. You're abandoning the law of Christ by abandoning the Torah. When he says, if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. We have a Christian church that doesn't believe Moses. You can't tell me you believe in Christ when you reject his word doesn't work and how scary is that because we're sitting here and we're thinking of family members and we're thinking of friends that we love so dearly that are rejecting the instructions of the holy one 
That's as scary as it gets. You know, it's time that we, as Torah-observant believers in Yeshua, who have been shown grace, it is time we establish a correct perspective of the Christian faith, a correct perspective of the Torah, because the devil is laying waste to the truth. He's casting truth to the ground. And I'm telling you right now, the spirit of Antichrist is in the church, and it is preaching from the pulpits. And nobody wants to say that. The spirit of Antichrist is doing this. And the things that are coming out of their mouths that is being said, this is the spirit of Antichrist promoting rebellion against God, cloaking it with liberty, cloaking it, giving them comfort as like a warm blanket. Let me comfort you in your sin and throw this blanket of liberty across you. There's some commentary that is worth sharing from the second century Christian apologist. He's known as Irenaeus. And he was a heresy hunter, okay? He went after the heretics. And this is what's going to blow your mind. This is second century, okay? Look at what he identified as the problem. This was in the heresy. The spirit of Antichrist was moving in the second century. This is what he says. Those persons prove themselves senseless, who exaggerate the mercy of Mashiach, but are silent as to the judgment. There's more here. I want you to take the statement in. What did the heretics, according to Irenaeus, when he was looking at the heretics in his day, moving about, what was the one thing he noticed? They exaggerate the mercy. This is what they do. Now, how do they exaggerate the mercy? Oh, real simple. Read Deuteronomy 29. I will have peace even though I walk according to the dictates of my own heart. I shall see heaven, though I live like hell. This is how they exaggerate the mercy, and they blaspheme the holy name by which they've been called, by walking according to the world, and yet calling upon the name of Yeshua. I mean, go back to Galatians 2.17. If while we seek to be justified by Christ, and we ourselves are found sinners, is Messiah a minister of sin? God forbid, certainly not. This is the reality. You know, today, you know, believers, they, they want a Jesus that gives them heaven while they live like hell. They want a Jesus that doesn't convict them, but rather soothes their pursuits as they, as they pursue the world. They want a Jesus that affirms them. I mean, you listen to the gospel that is being preached today. It's all about, oh, I'm going to affirm you. I'm going to give you comfort. I'm going to coddle you with total deception. They want a Jesus that entertains them. I can't even believe the stuff that Mayas are seeing that are happening in the church. Absolutely mind-blowing. I saw something last night, scarred me. Absolutely scarred me. With some event that took place locally. Absolutely filled with all it was was just a big entertainment show. All under the guise of, we're going to go out and preach Christ here. They say a little two-second prayer. You know what we're going to do? We're going to immerse you and baptize you in the world's largest pillow fight. That's what we're going to do. It's an apostasy. It's an apostate church. The spirit of anarchy, you can smell, you can see it. it is demonic. It is from the pit of hell, and people got to call it out. Now listen to what he goes on and says. And they look only at the more abundant grace of the New Testament. It's like he wrote this today but forgetful of the greater degree of perfection which it demands from us, 
They endeavor to show that there's another God beyond him who created the world. They're following another gospel. They're following another Jesus. It's total perversion. Absolutely unbelievable. And Irenaeus is dealing with a lot of Gnostic issues. This is what the Gnostics did. The Gnostics had some really perverted thoughts in regard to creation, in regard to matter, in regard to salvation. But it's amazing, the very platform they rolled on was exaggerating the mercy of Christ. Unbelievable. You remember what Tertullian comes from the second century as well. What Tertullian said of Marcionism. What did he say? What was Marcion's primary exploit? What was his focus? According to Tertullian, the separation of law and gospel is the primary and principal exploit of Marcion. The very thing that the church is doing today to separate the law from the gospel. And his disciples cannot deny this, which stands at the head of their document, that document by which they are inducted into and confirmed into this heresy. He goes on, For such are Marcion's antitheses, or contrary oppositions, which are designed to show the conflict and disagreement of the gospel and the law so that they may argue further for a diversity of gods. In other words, here's Marcion. Remember, we've talked so much about him. Marcion believed, oh, that the God of the Jews was a wicked and vile God, a barbaric God. The law was barbaric. Totally, that's the demiurge. It's the God of creation, but that's not the God of the Christians. That's not the God of the Christian church. No, he's a loving God, and his emissary is the Messiah Yeshua. See, he identified these men that we're talking about, that Irenaeus is dealing with, that, that Tertullian's dealing with, with Marcion. They are Christians, and this is what they're doing. And they cannot, the only way they could argue for these, these, these dual gods, if you will, they had to separate the law from the gospel. Because when you separate the law from the gospel, I always say, sky is the limit. You can do anything if you do that. Marcion, who set up the separation and opposition to that peace between gospel and law. Here you are, Tertullian in second century, he identifies there was peace. There was harmony. There was unity between the gospel and law. Not conflict, not separation, which previously from the appearance of Mashiach until the impudence of Marcion had been kept unimpaired, meaning it was never broken. That unity wasn't broken and, and unshaken by virtue of that reasoning, which refused to contemplate any other God of the Torah and of the gospel than the creator against whom after such a long time by a man of Pontus, separation has been let loose. I mean, what we are seeing, and I, and I show you this because what we are really seeing today is a real revival of Marcionism. It's the spirit of Antichrist. It's the very spirit that even the early church fathers, which I don't agree with everything where they, that they stood on, but even they sought and they were appalled. You know, men like Charles Spurgeon and even more recently Leonard Ravenhill and, and men like David Wilkerson, they preached against this apostasy. They preached against the things that we are seeing in the church right now. And they did it with power and they did it with scripture. In closing, I just want to take you to Matthew. And uh, it's, a, it's a passage we looked at a couple weeks ago. But I want to take you back here because it coincides with everything we're dealing with and just builds on it. What did Yeshua say? He said, Whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. This is the law and the prophets. 
meaning everything that the law, the Torah, and the prophets are, which apparently we're supposed to unhitch ourselves from today, everything they are, everything they're telling us is to love our neighbor, to do unto them as we would have them do unto us. It's the golden rule. This is, this is what, we need the perspective of what Torah really is, right? It's the law of Christ. That's what it is. It's the perfect law of liberty. I'm going to close with this commentary. I took this out from the Torah treasury, but it really impacts it powerfully. The whole concept. Many people are servants of their passions, but the truly free person, the free person is the one who can control his desires. When the sage is taught, only one involved in Torah is truly free. And he's pulling that from Perkeo Vote. They meant to say that only Torah allows one to free himself from the shackles of desire and to truly exercise free choice. See, without the Torah, one is not free at all. He is a slave, controlled by a master foreign to his better instincts. While intellectually, he might have correct ideas of how to live, ultimately his master, his passion, will force him to act otherwise. You can take it to the bank. You can take it to the bank. If you are going to reject, and I want to be clear on something, because, uh, you know, Somebody from the outside reading this would say, well, Daniel, the Bible's very clear. We're not justified by the Torah. We're justified by Christ. Agreed. I want you to understand something in regard to the context of what this was written. Make no mistake. None of the righteous men in the Old Testament believed that they were saved in and of themselves. None of them. Look at David. He said, my goodness, in Psalm 16, he says, my goodness, apart from you, it is nothing. As you go on to Psalm 31, he says, deliver me in your righteousness. Does he sound confused? You go to Psalm 71, he says, I will make mention of your righteousness, yours only. And then you can go to Isaiah 54, and the Lord proclaims, the righteousness is from me. And then you can go to Deuteronomy 9. Go to the Torah and, say, and the, Moses warns, the Lord warns them. Do not say that the Lord is bringing me into this land of promise because of my righteousness. It's not because of your righteousness. So this is the context by which this statement's being made. And what they're saying is that if you go ahead and cast the Torah away and you're not listening to God, your flesh is going to get you. The devil's going to get you and you're going to fall. You are not free. You're not in liberty. 